<laughs> Hello and welcome to episode four of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Today we're very fortunate to have Grant Dasher, uh, and he's testing out our lapel mic this week, so it should sound really good this week. Uh, Grant's going to be teaching on book one and also introduction to mere Christianity. Grant Dasher. All right. Do you mind putting that in my back pocket there? <laughs> yeah, I don't mind at all. You're going you're gonna to have to edit that out. There we go. No, I, there will be no All right. <laughs> Has Kyle ever done anything like half-heartedly? Everything no. <laughs> like, Kyle does like to the max. This is hilarious. This is ridiculous. But, okay. Um, all right. So, I, like Kyle mentioned, we're, I'm going to do, um, this is kind of two lessons in one. It's an intro to the book, Mere Christianity. And it's also a discussion of book one in Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity has four books that's contained within the one book of Mere Christianity. If that makes, is it five? I don't know. You looked at me like that you were confused. I, I thought it was three, but I, I think I, it's four. I don't know. Anyway, I've only, I've only read the first one, so um, we're, we're getting there. I tried to read Mere Christianity in 2005. I think I, I, the bookmark was, a, uh, was like a Euro like calling card thing that, that people used to use, and it was like on page six, so I didn't get very far. Um, but I had some good stuff under nine on those first five pages. Um, but let's just start with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought the best, perhaps the only, service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. So at the heart of this book, Mere Christianity, is this desire by C.S. Lewis to perform Christian service. So we think of service in a lot of different ways, but, but Lewis makes the point that, that the best and maybe even the, even the only service that he could provide was to simply tell the truth about what we believe as Christians. So this is his service project, explaining and defending Christianity. So Lewis writes, Mere Christianity, a book containing the basic tenets of our faith to those who do not believe. And many would argue that it's had an impact on those who believe but are struggling as well. And I'll include myself in this. Uh, you know, whether it's been his writings or, or people who have written things based on what he wrote, um, it's had an impact on many of us. So Lewis refers to the book as an invitation to a great hall from which there are many doors. So picture a great hall from which there are many doors. And he says that the hall is a place to wait until you find the door that you must enter. So in other words, he's inviting through this book his unbelieving neighbors, spelled with a U. It's awkward. It's weird. Every time I read it, every time I write it, it's, it's uh, telling me that it's spelled incorrectly. But he's inviting his neighbors into this great hall where they wait. And eventually they enter a door into a church or a denomination that falls within our faith. Does that make sense? So there's this great hall where you come in and you first believe, and then there are these doors that are basically different churches or denominations that you can enter, and they're all under the same roof. He says, above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere tastes or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? 
He then says, when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. So his point is this, search for a church or a denomination that is true and holy and good. And then when you found that church, remember that there are other rooms in the home, right? And though those rooms may have different names, they are still all under the same roof. So then the question becomes very simply, well, who lives in this home? Like, what does it mean to call yourself a Christian? Now, I, uh, I'm gonna, going to admit that I kind of hate the word progressive because I think it carries with it a connotation that is unfair to those who disagree. So, so if someone is progressive and you disagree, what are you? Well, you're regressive, right? Like he's regressive. And, and you don't hear a lot of people like at the coffee shop saying like, oh man, like I'm just like really regressive on like a lot of issues. Like, you, you know, no one's like bragging about being regressive. But if, you're, if, if I call myself progressive and you disagree with me, well then, you know, by default, you're, you are regressive. And so I think the word carries with it a, a connotation that's unfair. But for those of us who are part of a quote progressive church, I think we take issue with this question, who lives in this home? Who can we call a Christian? In progressive churches, we don't like to judge. And I think for the most part, that's because either we or our parents came from a very judgmental authoritarian tradition in which anyone who disagreed was what? Lost, right? Oh, they disagree, they're lost. Burn in hell. So if you didn't hold the right view on communion or instruments or baptism, you were destined for hell. So just a couple weeks ago, I, I had a conversation with an old friend whose son is a recovering heroin addict. And coming out of rehab, he started attending a denomination other than the one that he grew up in. And the mom said that the dad was just like devastated, you know, just devastated that he was going to this other church. And I'm thinking, this is maybe the first time in this young guy's life that he's been excited about knowing Jesus. And rather than us being excited with him, we're freaking out about the name on the building. And I think that's the way many of us grew up. Um, and if not us, and honestly, maybe not, maybe not a lot of us, but if not us, our parents. And the problem is that people started realizing that this home was much larger than we had been told, right? We started realizing that a lot of these, these quote, lost people were actually really faithful followers of Christ. So to be clear, I do want to be clear here, because I think there's always room for confusion anytime I speak. Um, but to be clear, I'm not saying that, that secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues don't matter. They clearly impact how we operate as a church and how we live as Christians. The point is this, I think that many of us, I believe this is true, I could be wrong, but I think many of us have been negatively impacted either through our parents' generation or ours by this idea that our church has it all right and anyone who disagrees is lost. I think that's had a negative impact on a lot of us. And so we do what we often do when we experience something negative, we embrace its opposite. That's why for many of us, the question of who could be called a Christian, it kind of like, I think it makes us a little uncomfortable because for so long, we were so dogmatic about labeling people as, as non-Christian, who we come to find out, like, 
maybe they were Christians, right? So we don't want to find ourselves back in that judgmental, authoritarian place that either we or our parents grew up in. But Lewis makes this point. He says that there are, in fact, basic primary doctrinal beliefs that we can all agree on. These are the things that make up mere Christianity. Just, he's just like, mere Christianity, just, this is it right here, right? And the irony is that we're, when we're on this linear scale, so you've got like, I'm going to use a different one here. That's not much better. Okay, so you've got ultra-progressive here. All right, we'll use that word, even though we don't like it. And then you've got strict authoritarian over here. And it's this linear... This linear scale. I don't know if you can see that. But the irony is that when we're, when we're on this linear scale, the gospel's like not anywhere on this. It's nowhere to be found. It, like, you'll never hear the gospel anywhere, anywhere here. So Lewis makes the point that public arguments amongst Christians over secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs, and keep in keep mind I use the word public, public arguments amongst Christians over secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs beliefs actually serve to push non-believers further from belief. Do we think that's true? I see a lot of heads nodding yes. Public arguments over secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs, public, meaning like it's all out there. It, it actually serves to push people away. In other words, this disproportionate focus on secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs means that no one can hear the primary beliefs, right? And then on the flip side, over here, if you're just like a nice person and you serve the community, you're just, I'm super involved in my local community and uh, I choose 901, I keep it local. <laughs> Everybody loves you, but you never explain or defend the primary beliefs. Well, guess what? The gospel is just as powerless. This is, it's the same thing. People need to know why you are kind and why you want to serve them. You have to get to that. The goal, I think, and this is just my opinion, should be to remove ourselves from this linear scale and to instead focus primarily on the primary doctrinal beliefs, secondarily on the secondary doctrinal, doctrinal beliefs, and tertiarily, is that a word? Oh, yeah. yeah, I knew you would know, you would know. You probably, you probably use that word like today, probably. So, <laughs> tertiarily, on the tertiary doctrinal, doctrinal beliefs, you get the point. Not to say that they don't matter, but let's just keep things in perspective. So I don't know how Satan thinks, for the most part, but if I were Satan, I would try to get God's church to talk as little as possible about the things that matter most. So Christ's atoning blood, the resurrection, Christian morality, what is good, what is evil, where do good and evil come from, the deity of Christ, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the indwelling work of the Spirit in our lives. I've just seen, I've witnessed that those are the things. Are you taking over from here? Yep, yeah, taking over. All right. Eric's <laughs> tagging me out. Um, those are the things that have the power to transform people's lives, right? Those are the things that have the power to liberate people. A lot of this other stuff that we focus on, it is complete, it's impotent without first knowing these things. And so, 
Those are the things that are most crucial for non-believers to hear. And Lewis says that the basic components of mere Christianity should be the things that unite us. So we should be united around those things. So that is the why behind the what. The why is so that Christianity in its purest form can be explained and defended to our unbelieving neighbors, whether you, um, and that we can all be united in that singular cause. So not simply being nice people that serve our community, but, not all, but also not getting disproportionately bogged down in things that aren't primary but instead sharing the basic truths of Christianity with the people that we know who do not believe. That's it. So we'll spend the next five weeks discussing those basic truths, but today we'll cover just book one of Mere Christianity, uh, of four, I believe. Um, It is entitled Right and Wrong. I'm not going to write this down because it's too much to write down, but you can remember this. The, the, The first chapter, the first book is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the meaning of the universe. Right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. It's a great title. So the story goes that uh, Sir Isaac Newton was, he was sipping tea, pinky extended probably, uh, one summer afternoon beneath an apple tree when all of a sudden the apple broke loose from the tree and, and just clobbered poor Isaac on the head, right? So I, I've read that this story is not true. Does anyone know if it's true or not? No one knows. Um, The story may or may not be true, but what is true is that at some point Isaac Newton realized that all objects on earth have, they share this common behavior. Maybe at some point he noticed that if if he tipped his tea forward too much and it escaped the rim of of his teacup, you know, gravity would would pull the the tea down into his lap and it it would burn him, right? Or maybe he noticed that every time he bent over too far, his, his wig would fall off onto the ground, right? The British are strange people. They, they really are. Um, and I know they don't wear They still wear wigs, actually. They still, yeah, they do. That is weird. Um, in any case, what Newton observed and what we all observe is that every time you let go of something, it, it falls to earth. And I know what some of you are thinking, what about a balloon with blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You know, helium's lighter than atmospheric air, and so, you know, the the helium is displaced. Oh, you get the point. The point is that that, that Newton had discovered what would be known as the law of gravity. And I have a friend who's who's Muslim. He says that there was actually a a Muslim scientist who discovered it first. So we may have a, this, this Western-centric view, and it's not even Newton, but the point is someone, someone discovered this law of gravity, and we call it a law because we ne- we've never discovered anything that acts differently, right? We say that it acts this way every single time. 100% of the time, we can observe objects being pulled toward one another depending on their mass and how far apart they are from one another. And we have lots of laws like this in physics and math. We say, you know, these objects or these numbers behave in this certain way every single time. And we call their behavior law. Lewis says that like these laws of physics and math, there is another law called the law of nature. He says this. He says the law, or this law, was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. 
They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd individual here and there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or who have no ear for a tune. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe they were right. If they were not, and this is, I think this is pretty incredible, if they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. What was the sense in saying the enemy were, were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had, if they had, had no notion of what we, mean, what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. So Lewis says that the law of nature is just as real as the law of physics, but that the difference between the laws of physics and the law of nature is that you can't know the law of nature just by observing people, right? You can't know the law of nature just by observing people. We can know the law of gravity by observing the way that objects fall to earth, right? Over and over again, the rock falls to the ground every single time. It's almost as if that rock has no choice, right? Isn't that strange? It's almost as if the rock has no choice. Like it has to fall when you drop it down to the earth, right? But people are different. We do have a choice. Lewis says that the law of nature cannot be known by observing people in the same way we observe rocks falling. Instead, the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. That's pretty profound, I think. This is his point. You can't observe the Nazis and say, well, I guess there's no real law governing human behavior. Humans aren't like rocks. We have the freedom of human choice, and the truth is the Nazis chose evil, right? Objectively, like we know without a doubt that what the Nazis did was wrong. It, it doesn't mean that there's not a natural law. It simply means that they chose to, broke the, to break the law. And here's, and here's the rub. This is the part that, that, that maybe hits a little closer to home. We all break that law at some point or another. So I, I have a, a confession to make. I, I have done things that are purely for my own selfish gain at the expense of others. My, my wife, my kids, you guys, I've cheated, I've stolen and lied, and almost everyone you know would say that that is objectively wrong. The question that we've gotta ask is why? Why is it wrong objectively to be selfish? Why is it wrong to enslave? Why is it wrong to oppress? Are these ideas like, like justice and truth and, uh, and evil, are they just kind of floating? I saw a picture in a book where like all these, these ideas, evil, justice, truth, goodness, like all these things are like floating out in space, just, just out there. And like, are they just out there for us to just kind of grab a hold of? Um, some people would say that they're, they are instinctual that we feel this impulse to act in certain ways based on the coding of our DNA. So it's all just genetics. And the problem, Lewis says, is that, that we confuse the instincts themselves with the moral law that govern, governs those instincts. That's kind of wordy. But in other, in other words, the, he says the instincts are like the keys on a piano. Lewis says every key is at one time right and wrong at another. 
So think, think of like a, a mother's instinct to love her son. Almost every time this instinct is good and right. But we all know those moms, right? Maybe you're one of them. Are you one of them? <laughs> the baseball game? Uh, does anybody have kids old enough to play in baseball? Anybody, anybody playing Little League Baseball or in, in here? Or soccer? Maybe you're, or maybe you're that dad. You could be that dad too. But uh, an instinct uh, that a mother has to love her son, but we've seen it develop into hatred for the umpire or the other team, right? You see, like, I love my son. I hate the umpire. You know, that's, that's a time in which a good instinct is, is bad, right? It's the, the, it's the right key at the wrong time, right? And so, uh, you know, or what about instincts, um, you know, for like sex and fighting? Like most of the time, those instincts are wrong. Like what if every time you felt that instinct, you acted on it? That'd be weird, right? <laughs> That'd be strange. We probably wouldn't be sitting in this room, right? We wouldn't be here. If every time you felt that instinct, you acted on it, you know, we wouldn't be here. Uh, but there are times when they're right. There are times when a husband and a wife should have sex. And there are times when helpless people need to be defended from people who want to hurt them, right? There are times when that's good. Our impulses or instincts are the keys on a piano. Every key is at one time right and another wrong. But this is beautiful. There is a symphony that has been written for us, right? And we have the sheet music. Like God has given us this sheet music and Paul says it's been written on our hearts. And if we play the notes the way that they've been written, what follows is beautiful. But if you just get on the piano and y'all need kids who, who just do that, y'all have piano in your house, it's, it's awful. The noise, it's chaos. I hate it. I don't want to hear that. So there's a difference between the notes on a piano and the way that song is supposed to be played. And there's a difference between our impulses or our instincts and the way in which we are supposed to act. That's a pretty profound point that he makes. Listen to Lewis here, and this is... This is so good. He says the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. You might think love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and becoming in the end a cruel and treacherous man. I'll just let that speak for itself. Like that, I think, hits close to home in 2017 America, postmodern culture, right? So some people consider the law of nature to be just a, a social convention. So something, something man-made, something that we just created. So this law that governs what is good and bad and right and wrong is something that people just constructed. So coincidentally, as I was writing this, uh, finishing it up this morning, I'm kind of a last minute kind of guy, um, unlike Kyle. Uh, as I was writing this, Van came downstairs and I asked her, I said, I said, Van, why is it wrong to be selfish? And she said, well, because God told us when he made us, all right? Which, you know, maybe that's the standard answer. And I said, well, what if I told you that you should be selfish and that, that selfishness was good? And she said, well, that would be weird because I would have to disobey my parents, right? Like, she knows, like, no matter what you tell me, like, I know that it's wrong. Like, in other words, Dad, 
I've got this law written on my heart that I feel compelled to obey no matter what you or anyone else says. No, no, those weren't the words she used. Those are my words. <laughs> but that was the point. So Lewis makes the point that, that even if, let's say even if someone didn't know the law, that, that still doesn't mean that the law doesn't exist. He compares natural law to the law of multiplication. And he makes the point that we would never consider the law of multiplication to be man-made simply because a child stranded on a desert island doesn't know his time table. Like we'd say, well, the law is still true. This kid just, he's ignorant of the law, right? He just, he just doesn't know it. So complete knowledge of the moral law isn't required for it to be law. That's, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't say that about other laws. Secondly, everyone who operates under the assumption that some moral, or everyone does operate under the assumption that some morals are better than others. And you say, well, I don't do that. I don't judge. No, you're, you're a liar. You, you do. Um, you know, there were people in 1865 who believed that it was morally acceptable. Somehow they had rationalized in their minds that it was morally acceptable to own another human. And I don't know personally a single person who would openly say that today. I don't, I don't know anybody who would say that openly. We would argue that our view of morality in that instance was superior to theirs, and I think that we'd be right, right? I think we'd be justified in doing that. Lewis says this. He says, the moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. You are, in fact, comparing them with some real morality, admitting that there is such thing as a real right, independent of what people think, which is what Van was talking about, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. So some people say that morality is what benefits us as individuals. But like, what about when it doesn't? What about self-sacrifice? What about selflessness? Like, there are plenty of times where the moral or the right thing to do is pretty stinking inconvenient, right? Like, it's good to do it, but gosh, it's kind of a hassle. What about that? Some say that morality is what benefits society. Lewis says, if we ask, why should I be unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, well, why should I care about what's good for society except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, well, because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. So we ask this question, why should I do good things and not do bad things? Like that's, like that's just a real simple, basic question. Like that's, why, that's why I love this book, where it starts. It starts with the most basic question. Why should I do good things and not do bad things? And the answer is that if there is not some natural law governing our behavior, then I don't see how we have an obligation to do anything at all. I don't see why I have an obligation to be good or an obligation to not be bad. But I believe that there is a natural law that is seen in creation and that we know in our heart that it's true. I believe that. And I also believe that we all break that law. We all, at some point, and most of us frequently, daily, do things other than the things that we know that we're supposed to do. You know, I love, uh, Lewis talks about his purpose in writing the book to people like that, and 
and then he says something about you know if you're not you know if that's not you then disregard this and let's get back to to you know normal normal human beings right and the point his point is jokingly like we all break the law right so and that's that's the problem is that we all break the law and lewis says this he says this is the terrible fix we are in if the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless but if it is then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and we are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow <laughs> that sounds about right Lewis makes the point that nothing else in Christianity makes sense if we don't first understand this. And yet, I think a lot of times we wonder, like, why are we having such a hard time to get people to understand Christianity? Why is this so hard? You know, uh, William Lane Craig calls it pre-evangelism. Like, before you get to all the, the, the meat of what Christianity is, you know, C.S. Lewis says you kind of first have to understand this that there is a moral law that we all break and that that's a problem you have to understand that that's a problem we are all lawbreakers all of us none of us have kept this natural law that we know is true and if we don't understand how things went wrong how can we be under how can we how can we be expected to understand how things were made right think about that if you don't understand how things went wrong, how can you be under, uh, expected to understand how things were made right? How can we ever understand Jesus? How can we ever understand the cross? And to C.S. Lewis's point, how can we ever understand mere Christianity? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for uh, just your love and your mercy and your goodness and your justice. I thank you for your law. And God, I'm, I'm thankful that... Um, God, that you have given us Jesus to compensate for where we fall short. I'm thankful for his blood, and God, I'm thankful for his resurrection, and I'm just thankful for the hope that one day all of the, the wrong, all of the breaking of the law, everything that's bad in this world will be made right. And uh, God, we pray that that day uh, comes sooner rather than later. God, we pray for all of the wrong things in the world to be right. Uh, God, I, I pray too that all of our wrong thinking is made right. Um, the selfishness that I know that, that I have and um, God, I, I just, I do, I pray for, for change here and, uh, and God, we pray for ultimate change later uh, to come soon. And God, we love you, and we are just so grateful to be your children. And God, I pray that you use us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great job, Grant. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and stop this. Just don't mind me. Uh, you know, Grant and I actually almost got into a fight once, so if we had followed our instincts, we would have fought each other. That's probably more than once, but definitely.